0: Hello, everybody, and uh, thanks for joining us for this uh, CMI School of Christ session. Appreciate it very much. Um, put these on just to make sure the sound's right. Hello, hello. Yeah, there, <laughs> there you go. Um, we are still taking that detour from our Romans classes. We'll get to, back to those at some point. However, we've been looking in the last couple of uh, lessons at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, or the Beatitudes as some refer to it, and we're going to continue on that today. In our last time together, we, we dealt with the blessed are those who mourn in this, uh, sermon today, we're going to go to Matthew chapter five, verse five, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now, again, this is shaky ground for most believers. And again, as I said, at the very onset of these lessons, these were problematic and uh, not a good word to use, but these were verses that I stayed away from because of my concept with regard to them. And we'll, I, I want to address that a little bit with you, but as I began reading these verses at the very beginning of looking at these uh, verses before I ever um, began teaching on them, because it took me a while to just allow the Lord to strip away all of the preconceived ideas that I brought to the table, so that I could see clearly the things that Jesus is saying here, and actually contextualize these comments and and stop trying to uh, present day interpret them and understand the setting and the context are valuable uh, things to look at when we are approaching these verses, because they matter so much as the one sitting in the high mountain and teaching his disciples and teaching those that come um, as some of the commentaries, as we've said before, call this the, new covenant Mount Sinai, because you're basically seeing Jesus present the blessed state of those who will come to the new covenant, come to the newness of life, come to the kingdom of the Messiah and receive in him and his kingdom, the blessings that were promised beforehand, the blessings that were testified of under the testimonial age of the law, the prophets, And as I was looking at that, one of the things that came to my mind, I think it's interesting to see. And when we read Deuteronomy chapter, I think it's 27. There were, there was a pronouncement in the midst of Israel, the blessings and the curses. And the very significant part When looking at this context here and what this means, what this this, uh, setting actually is introducing in the midst of Israel was the culmination of all the promises, the coming of the kingdom, the messianic rule of Christ, their Messiah, and all the benefits of receiving that kingdom. And Of course, we understand how that kingdom is received by looking at John chapter... Three, where it is that kingdom is received by new birth. But in looking at that setting, we, it was interesting to me when going back to Deuteronomy concerning the keeping of the law, the blessings and the cursings that were attached to the uh, uh, o- obedience to the law. It was interesting to see that as the pronouncement of the cursings came, when they were when the cursings were being pronounced over Israel the congregation had to say amen they had to amen the curses and i found that interesting especially especially in light of the fact that when the blessings were pronounced in the same time frame the same people did not amen that They did not amen the blessings. Why? Because in their state, the blessings were never amen. But the curses were. There was a so be it to the curses because... They, as natural men, God knew this from the beginning, were unable, no matter what they said, their boasts, you know, we'll do everything he says, no matter that, God understood that there was no possibility in them obeying the law or keeping the law because an internal government made that an impossibility. So the curses were amen wholeheartedly. The blessings weren't. Why? Why? Because of this. This setting pre- presents to us the time in which these blessings are actually amen. When the one who makes the keeping of the law a possibility and not an internally for us who received, who will receive or do receive him, not only a possibility, but a, an actual transaction of heart that provides to the soul, the law, the righteousness of the law fulfilled a perfect obedience. He is the one who is the amen of all of the blessings of God. He is the amen, the yes and the amen of all promises And with that, all of the promises in that are the blessings. And now he is pronouncing to these who are assembled and far-reaching beyond them to an age waiting on his coming the blessedness of the reception of this messianic consummation, this messianic kingdom. And that in the receiving of him, they would receive all things. And and see, that is a beautiful thing to understand, and it takes away this fear that men have when they read these things because as I did when I first began to approach these verses, for the many years that I steered clear of even trying to look at them in in a way that I am now, kept a distance because I did and I can see how it can be perceived that these verses are speaking of a transactional proposition. Even for those of us in Christ and especially for those of us in Christ that Jesus here is reaching into, you know, into the future where those who received him would have this transactional proposition given to them. And what I mean by that is we believe when we read these things, that if you behave or do this, if you behave this way or do this thing, then this particular thing will be your reward. Or as we teach it to this particular thing will be your punishment. But that's not the case at all. Jesus is not describing a transactional uh, view of salvation or a transactional working between flesh and spirit, man and God. That takes away from the whole idea, you know, that forfeits the whole concept of this sermon on the Mount, which is that we are poor in spirit, that we have nothing but bankruptcy and, uh, impoverishment of heart when we come to him. And I said at the beginning of these lessons that, you know, this is speaking of a particular posture of heart of those who enter the kingdom of God and uh, uh, a condition that they are found in of poor in spirit, which is absolutely true. That's not a, Or Am I or am I not, that's a truth that they have to realize and then come to the one that can only um, overcome and override that poverty by imputing his riches, his wealth to the soul, the mourning of, of a people, all of that. And I still believe, and I believe more than ever that that is true. But as we go in these verses, you will see there is a matter of progression. Um, as to entering the kingdom and the continuance of being in the kingdom, there's a progression of things as that will be described here as the Beatitudes and the condition that will receive um, him and receive this kingdom is the recognized condition of spiritually impoverished, spiritual poverty, poor in spirit. In fact, you, you remember And I did teaching on this a few months back of a man who went out and tried to was going out to hire men to work in his vineyard. And it talks about those who were, were there. They weren't out looking, looking to be hired. They were standing and and the man went to them and said, why are you idle? The word idle there doesn't just mean lazy or at all mean lazy. It actually means fruitless barren. He goes to those who are barren, those who are without any ability at all as to spiritual matters. They are barren, they are idle, they are empty. and he hires them to come and be in work in his vineyard. So that is the condition that men are found in. that they need to come to this man of substance. This man who in himself has all divine riches to find in him comfort for the mourning in ashes, who are mourning in ashes for the destruction and the destitution that they are in. As a nation, Israel, and as men, destitute of heart, it's also a declaration of the blessedness as we progress of those who will be in Christ and in so being in Christ face persecution and revilement because that that comes as well. But we have to understand that these conditions of poor in spirit of mourning and meekness that we will cover today are not the present obligatory state of Of those who are in Christ. The only present thing is for is to understand that in ourselves, as weak earthen vessels, separated from Him, that is our condition, poor in spirit. But again, speaking contextually to these people who were waiting on their Messiah, he's speaking of more weighty matters as to their hope a hope that we now have as christ in us he is speaking to them of their hope fulfilled of the blessings that were promised of the comfort that the messiah only could bring that this inheritance of the earth that we're going to read we're reading of in matthew 5 5 that can only be brought about in the kingdom brought about in the messiah We who are in him are always in need of a continual power of his abiding presence to make the realities of spiritual life concurrent and effectual. We're always recognizing our nothingness, our insufficiency, but we live in him understanding the concurrent and the overriding. nature of his presence because he has provided himself in salvation by new birth he's providing himself uh, provided himself to the soul as the answer to all of our emptiness see our emptiness should never be our focus that's the problem so many times the emptiness that we perceive perceive not a not actually there just our perception because what we think fullness is has to do with what our perception of fullness is and that has to do with our um, performance not his presence so we make our emptiness or our perception of our emptiness the focus of our pursuits or our thoughts toward god and we should not be occupied with observing how our attitudes or our inclinations or our motivations are not entirely congruent with his life, that, that merely diverts us away from truth. It, our hearts should be set toward the knowing of a sure, steadfast, anchored state which has been bestowed and imputed and continues to sustain us without any supplemental effort on our part necessary. Such a setting of our heart has to be founded upon the assurance of his sufficiency, the assurance of who he is within. And that plays into this because again, if, if we look at, this preconception that he is talking to believers. We miss the beautiful impact of these words, the weight of this messianic declaration that he is, uh, giving on this mountain to these people who are assembled to hear him. He's speaking of a reality that will fulfill the hopes of an entire age of promise and, testimony and the blessings that will be ushered in in the coming of that one that kingdom that Messiah so blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth this word meek here again so many believing that he's talking about how we should act, how we should be, our attitude, what our attitude should be as believers. We take this word and we do what we do with every word. We self-analyze it and we self-assess it and we self-interpret um, it, meaning we interpret it. We interpret it with ourselves as the object of it. So this is how we need to perform. We need to be meek. Jesus said he was meek and lowly. So, hey, we need to be meek and lowly. No. The word here for meek is the same that we have found so often in Scripture. The Septuagint plays this out as well, according to the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary that I'm reading here. It's the same which we have found is often translated the poor showing here how closely allied these two features of character are. It is impossible indeed that the poor in spirit and the mourners in Zion should not at the same time be meek. It is all again. It is a condition that he's describing here, not a characteristic that we need to achieve. He's speaking of those who are in Zion, knowing, waiting on the consummation of the age and understanding their, the impossibility of them receiving it in their present condition. They understand they are poor as to matters of the spirit. They are those who are now in mourning. And in so doing, they, knowing their poverty, they are coming to him understanding except you do this, except I receive the end of the law in a person. Nothing of the blessings promised, nothing of the prophecies given, nothing that God ever intended and said to us will ever come to pass. They understand that they are without strength as to the things of God. The meek are those who do not claim right to something that does not belong to them, but they come unto God knowing. Now for anything to be their actual possession as to real true possession, any of the promised substances testified of in the land of promise, they might receive it only from the power and from the possessing of the Lord himself. Now, here we're not speaking of the possession of earthly goods because, again, this this is what's been done. You can twist. That's the thing. You could twist scripture in a thousand different ways and come up with a thousand different interpretations, millions of different uh, interpretations, but meaning you could twist it in all of these different ways and come up with all. So we have the health and the wealth people preaching that, yes, the meek, you know, be meek, and you'll inherit the earth. That means we'll have all kind of possessions on the earth, and we will uh, 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 prosper in these earthly structures, the world systems. We'll have wealth and influence in the world. That's not what he's talking about. That's not his point at all. To understand that, we have to understand, again, the condition that he is addressing here as those who are in a state of poverty and meekness and mourning, waiting on something of substance to finally come, and understanding it hasn't come in all of their ambitious desires and zealous efforts. It hadn't come that way. That hasn't been the means of it. But he is. He is. We have to understand the earth he's addressing here. And it's this way in so many different places in the scriptures this way. Um, When the, the, the phrase the earth is talking about, it's not talking about the planet. It's talking about a particular place. Again, from the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary, the earth, which the meek are to inherit, should be rendered the land. The land, not the earth, the land. They should bring our mind immediately to the testimony, talks of the land, the land, the land. To me, and according to this, they confirmed it in this commentary, but it's, it's very uh, evident when we again do not remove these words from their context and the setting that we are looking at in Matthew chapter 5. This brings out they shall inherit the land, the immediate reference to Canaan as the promised land the secure possession of which was to the old Testament saints, those waiting under that system. It was the evidence and it was the manifestation of God's favor resting on them. It was the ideal of all true and abiding blessedness. That's what the land of Canaan, that's the land flowing with milk and honey. That's the land of inheritance. That's the place that God had promised they would abide. Here he is talking to them about in the receiving of him and the kingdom that he was going to bring, that they would receive in him the actual kingdom, the actual land promised, the promised land. Not in testimony, not some dirt on another side of an ocean. We're talking about the actual spiritual culmination of it, the land of promise himself. These words are great proof that Jesus. Is here presenting to those who realize that all of their expenditures of religious efforts under the law have profited them nothing, at the offering of all of the blessings promised and witnessed to in the promised land, a land flowing with blessings abundant, houses that you did not build, vineyards you did not plant, and rest from all enemies. And this parallels with the entrance that remains the rest that remains for those who would come spoke of in Hebrews chapter four remains for the people of God. Yes, that rest is Christ. The origin of this statement by Jesus is in the Psalms. Psalms 37 is where he is drawing this from. It says the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And then you go down in Psalms 37 in verse 22, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. See the blessings and the cursings. If we go back and this is from the treasury of David, which is Spurgeon's uh, commentary of the Psalms. He goes back in Psalms 37:11. 11, and he says, by inheriting the land is meant obtaining the covenant privileges and the salvation of God. The meek shall take their lot with the rest of the heirs of grace to whom all good things come by sacred birthright. Not seeds as of many. Sacred birthright had nothing to do, and this is the thing Jesus is presenting to them not a sacred birthright that comes by natural lineage, but the blessings of the kingdom that comes by an altogether newness of life through the being born of the incorruptible seed of God. This is, this is how we partake of the true covenant privileges and the salvation of God that is represented by this inheriting of the land. That was the promise. Now the fulfillment is coming. Now it's being offered to these that will receive him as their Messiah. And that's exactly what Paul laments in Romans nine, ten, when he is lamenting over the fact that his brethren in the flesh, the Israelites would not receive him because all of these things, the covenants, the, 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 the adoption, the glory, the priesthood, all of it was theirs by promise, not just theirs, I promise, as testimonies, but all that they represented in a spiritual consummation has come in Christ, and he laments that they have not received him as such. A spiritual conclusion as the fullness of all that God had said, the amen of it all. And this is the very setting in which Jesus himself, sitting on the mountain, is is teaching that he is going to provide to those who will come to him in this posture of, of an expectation of knowing that he's the only source for the good that was promised. He's the only source that these blessings can come from, and they have to receive it in his person or they cannot receive it at all. This is what he's addressing. The blessings of the promised land will be yours who will come to me knowing that your righteousness by the law is not righteousness. I will give you the good of the land. I will give you the fat of the land. I will give you the riches of the land. I will give you oil. I will give you corn and all of the, you know, the prophecies. I will give you the wine of the vineyards that you didn't plant if you'll come to me. This is the beauty of understanding the context and the setting in which we're reading because. It causes you to understand the immensity of what is being presented here. And then the question of, is Christ indwelling our soul not enough for us? Because here he's saying that if you will receive me, I'll give you everything promised. I will be unto you and provide unto your soul everything that God promised under the age of testimony, I will give you that. It is the comforting that only the Messiah can give the kingdom that will come and the promised land and all that is found there, the blessings of it, the overflow abundance, the riches of it, the wealth of it, the grapes, the, you remember the, the fruit that they saw that it took two men to carry the grapes. That's what we're talking about, but not in testimony, not just a big cluster of grapes. We're talking about the fullness of the harvest himself. We're talking about the fruitful branch and the vine himself and the fruit of that vine being our possession. And in such the divine blessedness and riches found in the land, who he is, are our, is our possession overflow see why men want to make that natural wealth and bank accounts i'm telling you it's him it's who he is in the soul it's a wealth far deeper and abiding it's a wealth that no tax system that may or may not come in our future can touch If governmental structures, if governmental structures and administrations can disrupt your blessing, then may I suggest that it is not the blessing of God? Now We're not going to stay long on that verse, but we're going to move on to another. We're going to take a little time on this one. May not get fully through this one. We we may take a little longer to do that just to do it justice because this is another widely read (coughs) and widely misunderstood verse in Matthew 5, verse 6, let's read. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now let's get, a, get right at the beginning of this. Let's understand. And <clears throat> this is uh, from the Matthew Henry commentary. And I use these commentaries to to, for one reason, and that's to assure you that I'm not just getting these things out of my own head, that I'm finding that others have said this, that others have concurred with the understanding of these things. He says here that the righteousness with which we should be, uh, that their hunger and thirst after is here put for all spiritual blessings. They are conveyed and secured by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us and confirmed by the faithfulness of God. Not ours, but his. Let's just keep that in mind, that the righteousness for which they, he's speaking of here, hunger and thirst, that righteousness is, is referring to the righteousness of all spiritual blessings, all spiritual blessings. Again, as with all of these, context is important. The age of promise or the age of testimony was one that was waiting on righteousness in every aspect of that word. Because under that system, the effort, the exertion of zeal, the desire to be obedient to God under the law could could never produce or warrant any true divine spiritual result. Remember, we said that God has subjected them to vanity. That means emptiness as to result, not emptiness as to effort, but emptiness as to result. Effort was there in plenteous, plenteous fashion. (laughs) There was no lack of effort, but there was a great lack of result. There was no righteousness, never. That's why Christ is the end of the law so that righteousness could actually be a result because the righteousness of the law under the law, that righteousness as those who would be obedient and work and do and labor and efforts under the law, righteousness was never a result of that. Now, self-righteousness might have been, the assumption of righteousness might have been, and that's the thing that Jesus came and, 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 condemned however true righteousness the righteousness that god actually desired and the righteousness the law actually demanded was never result uh, a result of obedience to the law of moses ever and it couldn't be so paul in galatians 3 says is the law against the promise of god absolutely not god forbid for there had been a law given, who could, which had, could have given life righteousness. Then, verily, should have been by the law. It was a dire picture here. That system kept men constantly at a distance from righteousness. All spiritual blessings. It is a picture of a soul that was intended for life, but yet up until a certain moment in time, and Jesus here is introducing that moment in time, but up until a certain moment of time was always kept at a distance from the result and was always in so being at a distance in a state of spiritual starvation or impoverishment or famine. Was always starving for something that was never, ever possible. Because with man, it's not. And the law of Moses kept man at the forefront and made flesh. And that was the weakness of the law because it never could happen that way. The law had to come to its aimed for conclusion for righteousness that was demanded by the law to actually be real and actually be a realization for the heart that long for righteousness and that's what he's talking about again to make this verse talk about Christians today still hungering still thirsting for righteousness is to truly pervert this verse and truly hurt those who would believe it to be so those who are hunger hungering and thirsting for the spiritual blessings, according to Matthew Henry again, are will be blessed with those, those desires by being filled with that for which they have hungered and thirsted. They shall be filled with those blessings. God will give them what they desire to complete their satisfaction. It is God only who can fill a soul whose grace and favor are adequate to its just desires. And he will fill those with grace for grace who in a sense of their own emptiness have recourse to his fullness only. He fills the hungry and satiates them we'll look at those verses. This is what we're addressing. But what is the time frame in which this is realized? What is he addressing? Who is he talking about that's hungering and thirsty? The imagery from the testimony of God dealing with Israel further demonstrating the creation and the satisfaction that he had to come to bring is what we're seeing here in Matthew 5. And the, 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 the buffet, the, the great feast that he is inviting them to. The following verses, the verses that I'm going to read to you next, are from a time in which the temple and the wall this is in Nehemiah, the temple and the wall that were at one time broken down and torn down. They're, being, they're rebuilt. And after that, the law was rediscovered. And here is a prayer concerning God's gracious and glorious dealings to his people during this time. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 13. Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai and spake with them from heaven. And gave us them right judgments and true laws and good statutes and commandments. You made known unto them the holy Sabbath and the commandments, uh, commanded them precepts and statutes and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant. Listen, verse 15. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst and promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hast sworn to give them. Now let's, we're going to talk about these things, but let's, let's read again another place, Isaiah chapter 49. Again, we're talking about hungering and thirsting. Who is it that was hungering and thirsting? Because again, we have to understand what they were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. See, we apply that to Christians today and keep them all in this state of constantly hungering for something they don't have, thirsting for something they haven't been provided. And I'm telling you, if we do that, we miss the point. And we keep them on this treadmill, constantly going, but never arriving. And I'm telling you, you don't arrive there when you were born again. This reality arrived in you the righteousness that those under the system of testimony were were deficient of and therefore were constantly thirsting and hungering and working and laboring for because it was absent. It was never there. That righteousness that they were truly hungering for because they were famished and in starvation mode because it was never there. We have that righteousness in us right now, present. 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 And yet, most do not understand that. So instead of presenting the presence of the righteousness for which those under that system actually hungered for, we're telling those who are now indwelt by that righteousness and who can feed upon him as that righteousness, eat his flesh, feed upon him as their life, as their all, we're telling them it's yet to be. You've got to still hunger. You've got to still thirst. Your soul is still in a starvation mode and a, a, a and is famished because nothing has been supplied to it. That's bunk. He has fully supplied the need of the soul in the person of our salvation. The righteousness that was the object of the hungering and thirsting of those under the law. He's in us. So Isaiah 49, 8 through 10 says, Thus saith the Lord in an acceptable time, I have heard thee. In a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth or the land, and cause to inherit the desolate heritages that thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth. Again, we've talked about Isaiah 49. I will give you as a covenant. Who is he speaking to? Christ, the Messiah, to his toward his people. He is saying, I'm giving you as a covenant to them. And this is what you would declare to them, being, may, meaning this is what you will be unto them. You will be the one who establishes this land and causes them to inherit the desolation the hair, the inheritance that is made desolate at this moment. So you may say to the prisoners, and this is what he says as Messiah in Isaiah 60 to the prisoners, go free to set free. Those who are captive and prisoners, right to go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourself. They shall feed in the ways and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall listen. They shall not hunger nor thirst. He's talking about the coming of the Messiah. He's talking about the one who is the covenant of God made with the people who would receive him. That's in spiritual fulfillment. That is the church, the body of Christ. And what does he say about those who receive him as that covenant, as the one who establishes the land and brings the desolate heritages back to their full their full beauty and brings that as the inheritance of the people. What does he say about those who will receive him as such? They shall not hunger nor thirst. They shall feed in the ways. So we're seeing here the promise made here, that Jesus is now presenting in Matthew 5 as fulfilled to the soul of those who have hungered and thirsted, who were waiting on this sustenance that was always or that always eluded them. Now, if they receive this one, in them because he's bringing all things and you read it all through the fifth chapter of Matthew he's bringing all things of the testimony to their spiritual conclusion but he's also bringing them to their internal conclusion and showing that they're all they were all inter, intended for internal fulfillment because now those who receive him will receive the true bread from heaven and the true fountain of life and they will never be without spiritual nourishment again for they shall be filled right you are filled with the fullness of God in him you are filled full complete in him so to believe erroneously that this is the ongoing state of the born again believer is to hold to an idea that salvation wrought of God and imputed through Christ within leaves us still incomplete and leaves us in an ongoing condition that necessitates uh, a perpetual hungering and thirsting for something that's not yet present. And provided. The feast is not yet. Made ready. The covenant being bestowed. In the person of Christ. Internally. Is the feeling of the soul. With the good things. Which nourishes the soul completely. The hungering and thirsting. That God. Is addressing here. speaks of something that is essential for those who are waiting but not for those who possess In Luke chapter one, these are verses that we referred to a while ago in the commentary. I'm going to read these to you. In in Luke chapter one, verse fifty three, it says, "He hath filled." Listen, this is him coming as the Messiah. This is Luke one fifty three. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent away empty. What does that mean? What is the rich that have been sent away empty? It is those Jews who refused the true sustenance from heaven because they had their fill in their emblematic and superficial observances of the law. They were full of themselves and their own zeal had satiated them enough as far as they were concerned. But those who came hungering and thirsting for real food For the real thing, to receive in him what the law left wanting, they are filled with the good things. Does that relate back to Hebrews chapter 10 that says the law was a shadow of the good things to come? Yes. And he has filled the hungry with the good things because the good thing has come. In Jeremiah 31, verse 23 through uh, through 25, he said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring again their captivity. The Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. And here and there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all the cities thereof together husbandmen and they that go forth with flocks for I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. And this is directly before the promise of I will in that day make a new covenant with them because it speaks of the same thing. It's the coming of the new covenant that brings about the satiation or the satisfying of the weary soul. In fact, that word satiated doesn't just mean satisfied. It is a word to mean to gorge on, to gorge on something in abundance. I mean, just gorge on it. That's, that's the picture here. The picture is our salvation is a soul capable now, able now, and actually gorging upon the promised good thing in the person of the good thing himself. The weary soul is those who are thirsty. The word weary means thirsty. To replenish the weary, to replenish the sorrowful soul, the word replenish actually means to fill, fulfill, or bring fullness to it. Sorrowful soul refers back to those who mourn. It's a beautiful connection. Matthew chapter five here and just look at this. The word shall be filled here. Blessed are the meek for the or uh, blessed are they that hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. Is a very strong and graphic word originally applied to the feeding and fattening of animals in a stall. In Revelation 19:21, it is used of the filling of the birds with the flesh of God's enemy, also of the multitudes fed with the loaves and the fishes. It is manifestly appropriate here as expressing the complete satisfaction of spiritual hunger and thirst. Hence, why cliffs rendering fulfilled is strictly true to the original. So he's saying, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be full fulfilled. Why? Because Christ in you is the full fulfilled righteousness of God, meaning He is the fulfillment of that hunger and thirsting. There is no need to hunger and thirst when it is full fulfilled. Why will you look beyond full field? Because there's nothing beyond that. This is interesting because Jesus will go forward in this chapter, in this sermon and say that he has come to fulfill the law and prophets, not to destroy them. And could this have any connection? Of course it is connected. The fulfillment of the, or the gorging of, that is promised to those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness is the fulfillment of the law in one person through his abiding presence within us. That's the gorging of the soul upon the fullness of a feast that has been made ready to those who have come to eat and dine upon a reality that the law kept them away from. The words of Jesus and John helps us understand the reality here being addressed in Matthew 5. This is John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said unto them, "I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me, see there it is, He that comes to me, receives me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Notice this, I am the bread. He that comes to me shall never hunger and he that believes shall never, never thirst. Does this sound like when you receive Jesus as the bread from heaven, as the true sustenance and food of heaven itself, who is the righteousness that was under that system long awaited and hungered for, does that sound like those who have received him should still be in a perpetual state of, hungry, famished, starving. No, for he is made unto us. That reality for which the soul did hunger and thirst. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says of John 635, he that cometh to me to obtain what the soul craves. And as the only all sufficient and ordained source of that supply shall never hunger. He shall have a conscious and abiding satisfaction. From Calvin's commentary, who, who, whosoever shall betake himself to Christ, to have life from him will want nothing, but will have in abundance all that contributes to sustained life. To me, this should strike us very deep. We've been programmed to believe that the continued mindset of a believer should be the one of hungering and thirsting. And we claim that as a particular aspect of seeking the Lord. Now, again, if you want to use the the language of, man, I'm hungering for the Lord, I thirst, it's fine. But just understand that this verse is referring to something beyond just colloquialisms that we use in Christianity. see we we claim that it's almost like we're always trying to put the food out in front of them and never let them catch it because if they truly understood the fulfillment that is abiding in them that they, you know, they they may not hunger and thirst and that means for many preachers that means they may not be faithful they may become indifferent no they won't Because this hungering and thirsting gives way to a soul feeding continually upon the soul's nourishment of Christ in us. You don't stop feeding, you feed upon the one who is your continual abiding satisfaction. See, Jesus in Matthew 5 is presenting the posture of those who realize they're without any spiritual nourishment at all, understood that the Messiah had to come for them to receive that food from heaven, particularly those under the law are being addressed, because he came to them first. The law was not a legitimate source for the soul's nourishment. It was to expose, really, their malnourishment and their emptiness and the state of starvation that they were really in. Here in John 6, he is presenting the replete nature or the the nature of the believer's fullness or completion to ensure that faith and salvation through faith, or say that salvation through faith, provides to the soul every single element of the soul's need, or I could say everything that the soul requires. that for which it was created by God to ensure that he comes. Christ is the fulfiller of the law, the life of which righteousness is entirely bestowed. And that is what this one in Matthew five, this Messiah coming to his own, is offering and inviting them to receive see that's why he'll go on in Matthew five twenty and say, except your righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is a superficial righteousness that still leaves them internally in, famished the exceeding of that righteousness is that righteousness fulfilled meaning the righteousness of which the law speaks now abiding in your soul in spiritual perpetuity providing to the soul the sustenance that soul was always after and that soul always requires Not that we should perpetually hunger and thirst and be in a state of need. No. He that come to me, he that cometh to me as the bread of heaven, the bread of life, shall never hunger and never thirst. Because I am their food. I am their sustenance. I am the nourishment of their soul, the satiation of their soul. This is beautiful. I'm sorry for those who want to continue to hunger and thirst. That's Again, it's fine to use the phraseology that I hunger for the Lord, I thirst after him. That's fine. But don't use it thinking that. You hunger and thirst because you don't have true sustenance within. That there's still something missing that is necessary to be provided. No, there is one present that's necessitated to be known. It's, It's necessary to know. Why? That I may truly realize what God has done and what God has provided and the food from heaven that abides in me that I may feast upon feast upon the bread of heaven continually as one who is satisfied with a satisfaction that only the Messiah with the end can bring. Thank you so much guys for um, listening to this. Appreciate it. Um, you being out there means a lot to us and we appreciate you being out there and, um, being a part of these, uh, sessions. We thank you so much. And we, you know, we want to be, we want to do this. Of course, we also would love to see you face to face myself included brother Lumen, whoever, uh, we'd love to come and, and see you face to face and share with you these things um, in that setting, there is a dynamic to being together, face to face, not just on Zoom calls. There's a dynamic to that that um, you know, digital sessions do not do not substitute for that. So you know, if there's a if there's a time where you would like for us to come contact me ravenbird at gmail.com brother Lumen, jw at yahoo.com um uh, and jimmy and daniel whoever would love to come just sit with you face to face and uh, share these things um and learn the lord together so thanks again for listening guys we we love you and appreciate you amen